0: Welcome to Trade Finance Talks, a podcast from Trade Finance Global. During this series, we'll be hearing from global experts, as well as learning about the latest trends, technology, and insights in the world of international trade and receivables finance. Episode 37.
1: So I think certainly the coronavirus situation is an interesting one to start with because it's very current. But I think it's also highlighted the dependency of global companies on supply chains that are anchored in China.
0: I'm Dipesh Patel, editor at Trade Finance Global. Welcome to Trade Finance Talks. Today's podcast is all about Asian trade flows and their expected growth, which is predicted to be between around 4 to 9% in the next six years. Asia produces, trades, and consumes over two-thirds of major commodities. And the region is on track to top half of global GDP and 40% of the world's consumption by 2040. But it doesn't go without its problems. 900 billion of the 1.5 trillion US dollar trade finance gap stems from under businesses in Asia. Yet promising developments around regional free trade agreements and the delivery of innovative technology born out of APAC is undeniable. Today, I'm joined by Michael Walker, head of working capital finance at Finastra, and Balbir Rathod, senior manager consulting at Cognizant, joining us from Singapore, discussing the goods, the bads, and the ugly of Asia's working capital finance landscape from three lenses, trade, regulation, and technology. Michael, Balbir, thank you very much for joining me on Trade Finance Talks. So 30-second elevator pitch from each of you. Who are you, where are you from, and what do you do? Balbir, over to you to start.
2: Thanks, Vipesh. I'm Balbir. I'm working with Cognizant as Senior Manager Consulting with 15-plus years of experience covering payments, cash management, trade, and compliance. Predominantly, in my role, we advise banks and financial institutions around business transformations, technology, and the digital worlds.
1: Hi, everyone. My name is Michael Walker. I'm head of working capital finance for the Asia-Pacific region at Finastra. So I'm responsible for everything, trade and supply chain, finance across this huge, huge region. I've just relocated from London a few months ago, so I'm definitely enjoying the weather. And thank you very much for having me on, Pesh.
0: Yes, it's it's close to one degrees here in, in London at the moment. So 2019 was quite the year for receivables and supply chain finance, particularly in APAC. I think 2020 hasn't really shown any signs of slowing down in terms of geopolitical uncertainties, market volatilities, not to mention the outbreak of coronavirus. Michael, what have been the biggest themes in trade receivables and supply chain finance from an APAC perspective in the last few months?
1: So I think certainly the coronavirus situation is an interesting one to start with because it's very current, but I think it's also highlighted the dependency of global companies on supply chains that are anchored in China. Considering China only joined the World Trade Organization in 2001, it's now the world's largest exporter and second largest importer. So it's hugely important to the overall trade dynamic. This situation itself has highlighted that dependency and potentially shows the lack of flexibility in being able to redirect flows and orders. So certainly, that's been one of the big themes of the last few months. The second theme I've seen is new initiatives, along with the emerging consortia and emerging networks, actually centered around government backing and single trade windows, particularly the active involvement of the ICC in standards and process definition through the digital standards initiatives, which was previously the Universal Trade Network, the creation of the ICC trade flow platform, and the announcement in Davos of the collaboration between the Singaporean government, the ICC, and 17 global companies and financial institutions on trade trust, which is a legal framework designed to facilitate the adoption of digital technology in trade. We're also seeing Trade agreements focused on digital trade specifically, you know, between Singapore and Chile and New Zealand, those have already been ratified whilst negotiations with Australia are at an advanced stage. So the third area I think we're seeing as an emerging theme and a continued theme is about sustainability in practice. Banks no longer financing coal power plants, for example, and looking to use the evidence of goods provenance to provide finance. Technologies such as DLT and blockchain is making the cost of putting in place and monitoring sustainable initiatives cheaper, whilst that used to be an inhibiting factor for a sustainable finance. This is coupled with industry bodies such as the ICC, BAST, and ESG-focused rating agencies, driving standards and standardization of practices and frameworks. I think one challenge we do have, though, still is currently developing countries carry the greater share of carbon emissions, yet reducing those emissions could result in increased poverty rates due to dependencies on those industries. So, Dipesh, it's very much a balancing act in that respect.
0: Yeah, I think all three very, very pertinent themes, particularly around the standardization piece and, and the official announcement yesterday around the ICC DSI officially being launched, uh, backed by the Singaporean government and the Asian, Asian Development Bank, ADB, well, bit there's certainly no doubt about the importance of APAC in global trade. But I guess my question, is it all coming from China?
2: There are two sides to it, if you look at it. First is manufacturing piece and the services piece when you look at APAC as the manufacturing or service provider hub. From a manufacturing perspective, largely, China has been providing two-thirds of the goods across the globe, whether you talk of US or Europe, the predominant importers of the Chinese goods. From a services perspective, it's India which is leading. But over a period of time, what we are seeing, because of two reasons, one is the trade conflict between US and China. We have seen that Southeast Asian corridors amongst themselves is increasing the trade. And as a result, they are reducing tariffs among themselves. So from a manufacturing perspective, if you look at There is a shift gradually happening. Some of the supply chains, they are relying on countries like Vietnam, Philippines to set up their manufacturing facilities. This is just to mitigate the risk of single point of concentration. From a services perspective, largely what we are seeing, India is mostly from an IT services perspective. And when we talk of IT-enabled services or the Other services, it's the Philippines. So largely, with this kind of network, we have seen two trends emerging. First, it's not only the reliance on China because of the spread between manufacturing and services. It's between India, China, and Southeast countries, and plus collaboration happening among themselves. So these are potential things which we need to see. And as we expand, we are also seeing that these trends will continue, move forward in the near
1: future. I think to add to that, one pertinent stat around India and Vietnam in particular is that they'll become the 7th and 11th largest exporters globally in the very near future. So we'll see a diversification of supply chains. And as Balbir pointed out, the free trade agreements underpinning those means that they're going to be huge players in the global trade market to come. A lot to do with the growing middle class in those countries and increased access to
2: finance. And also just to add another point is from a geography perspective, China and India, their own internal consumption, that's also huge. So even if we're talking of their own internal population and taking care of their demand, that itself is a huge growth potential.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much both. And, And I guess that diversification of supply chains beyond china into other states vietnam the philippines etc is, is extremely important to consider when we talk about new financing arrangements and actually I was at the fci annual meeting in ho chi minh city last year and exactly the same themes were were being discussed around vietnams importance as an an export market moving forward. So let's talk about the financing requirements. What are corporates starting to ask for from their banks, in your opinion, when it comes to trade and supply chain finance requirements? And are the banks delivering on this? And Michael, I'll ask you to take the lead on this question.
1: So in some ways, their requirements haven't changed. And it ultimately comes down to faster turnaround times and lower pricing. But you alluded to in your introduction, Deepesh, the $1.5 trillion trade finance gap that exists globally. And a large number of corporates and SMEs can't get access to financing at all due to the inability to complete, say, know your customer checks effectively and the lack of collateral. In general, we're also seeing that corporates are asking for financing earlier in the life cycle of their trading relationships and being able to secure their supply chain through financing the long-tail or supporting deeper-tier financing. And this is where we've seen, in particular, fintech collaborations and the greater availability of data coming into play, so the likes of the collaboration between Standard Chartered and Logistics in China to provide deep-tier financing as one. So certainly, faster turnaround times, lower pricing, and access to finance generally, as well as earlier in the supply chain. I think the other area we're seeing corporates asking for from their banks is consolidated platforms across both traditional trade and supply chain finance, what we call working capital finance effectively. You know, The maturity of their counterparty relationships and the country they're doing business with will drive which product they use. And ultimately, they want a single view of their liquidity and to be able to manage their business in a consolidated way, even if they're doing business with multiple banks. And I think ultimately, what they'll want to do is maintain the flexibility to harness multiple challenges or multiple channels and initiatives for transactions, depending on the sector, region, and product in play. Yet, ultimately, from a bank's perspective and a corporate's perspective, they'll want to maintain a consistent process and operating model, regardless of the channel, network, or technology used. This is the only way really to future-proof themselves as we see emerging technologies and initiatives come to the fore in the rest of the decade.
0: Thanks, Michael. And I think that single point of view for cash management, treasury needs, liquidity management, et cetera, is also important when we take a regulatory view on this. And, And regulatory challenges, as we know, continue to eat away at bank margins. It's a trend we're seeing all over the world. And financiers are also preparing for challenges to capital allocation through Basel the upcoming Basel 4 rules as well as increasingly complex KYC and AML requirements. Balbir, in your view what are the biggest regulatory challenges here from a bank perspective?
2: From a banking perspective typically for large corporates KYC is a time consuming process. So for example if shell needs to open a relationship with standard chartered, it roughly ends up taking three to six months depending on the product what they need, the countries where they want the exposure, the facilities, and kind of products they need to offer. But story is different when you compare SMEs because there are three challenges with SMEs. First, data to take care of KYC requirements. Plus, we don't have shareholding pattern. So unwrapping takes a longer time to find out the ultimate parent. So for SMEs, this duration drastically changes and it can go up to six to nine months to open a relationship with the bank. Given this, banks have been taking the approach where if they find a client is a bit risky, they will not go ahead and onboard that client. So there are two issues as a result of it. First, you are moving away from the business completely. And second, these clients won't have access, so they need to explore parallel arrangements, like reaching out to non-banking financial corporations. And with the digital platforms coming up, like Lazada and All, or these kind of platforms, it is pretty much imminent that you will have to change the evaluation of the customers from a bank's perspective. Because here we will be talking about some of the entities who are going their business monthly 20% or 50% month over month. So the credit appraisal, how you are going to do that, or the kind of facilities what these customers will need will be drastically different. So given these kind of stringent requirements and the working model, banks or financial institutions need to relook at the market demand and tailor their solutions
1: I think double-clicking on the SME piece, it amazes me that SMEs represent around 95% of the world's companies and 60% of the world's private sector jobs, according to the ICC, generate around 75% of the world's GDP. However, over 70% of SME financing requests will be rejected initially. So clearly, there is a huge opportunity, particularly in this region around SME financing, that's currently been remains unmet from a, a financing perspective.
0: Thank you very much, both. And I think we've definitely seen the rapid rise of alternative liquidity providers entering into the market, perhaps as a result of this increased regulation and, or even the bank's ability to innovate fast to serve the customers. So I guess this leads on to my next question, and Michael, perhaps one for you here. Should banks be worried about the rise of alternative financiers? And should they be working with fintechs more?
1: So I think, firstly, there's already a very significant fintech and banking collaboration taking place in the market, and this will only continue to rise. You know, So most major banks have their own fintech arms in the form of incubators or fintech hubs. Banks absolutely want to work with the fintechs. Where I think their challenge sometimes is finding or onboarding and verifying those solutions, which they then have to deliver bespoke integration for and maintain over time. And this is where, shameless plug on a Finastra side, this is where open APIs and platforms such as our own FusionFabric.cloud are helping to take the emphasis away from banks in managing those fintech partners, standardizing the integration via open APIs, and offering that flexibility in choice of solutions. Going back to the point around the rise of the alternative finance providers, I think there's several reasons for this. One is their ability to capture areas of the market that's simply been unattainable for banks. Some of those platforms that we look at in China, they're already supporting a huge number of businesses already. So, have the relationships, the trust, and the data available to them to be competitive in their offering. It's a small leap. From there to offering new services and new financing based on that data, banks have simply not been able to reduce that barrier to entry for those who needed financing most, nor have they been able to digitalize effectively at scale due to, in some part, to their legacy processes and systems. I think those platform companies and new technology companies also have the ability and the agility to offer next-gen services and experiences at speed. I think if you look at the experience we get from our retail lives versus our professional lives, as a good example. If we look at the experience we get from Amazon or Google or I get through my iPhone, that is not the experience I associate with my bank from a retail perspective. It's certainly not the experience I would have within a corporate bank today more often than not. And in some respects, the NEO and Challenger banks have shown that it's actually quicker to build a digital-only bank from scratch than have an existing bank pivot to new experiences and new ways of doing business. Ultimately, what we're seeing is those platform companies collaborating with the banks. So a big example of this would be Google working with the banks in India to provide digital lending and SME financing. Let's not also forget that it's not just the traditional platform companies, it's other areas of the ecosystem for trade that are offering finance as well. So Maersk have been offering trade finance, for example, since 2017 and have dispersed about $700 million US of financing as of mid-last year. And they aim to disperse a further $200 million of financing in India alone actually by the end of 2019. So it'd be great to understand where they got to with that. But Merck in particular are leveraging that position they have in the ecosystem and their role in that value chain, To offer new services that will compete with banks.
0: Thank you. And I guess, how can technology help here? Because there's the obvious issue around the huge upfront costs and investment costs from a bank perspective to really enable some of these next-gen services that the retail customers or us in our day-to-day lives see on a on a regular basis. Balbir. How can we perhaps reduce the cost of supporting transactions and how can technology help
2: here? Historically, we have seen there are three challenges which are associated with the supply chain finance or the trade industry. First one is there are islands created because of the multiple parties involvement. When we are talking about the multi-parties, just to name a few, any trade transaction, you will have regulators involved from that country perspective. You will have shipping agencies or the cargos. Then you will have financial institutions from the originating party and the beneficiaries. There could be also intermediaries. So there are a gamut of parties who are involved in closing a single transaction. And anywhere the break happens, you will see that the integrated digital flow would go away. So from a technology perspective, historically, we have seen some of the technologies like OCR, digitization of the invoices, then digital invoice generations, which have been now mandated across some of the countries where digital invoicing is becoming mandatory. So these kind of technology initiatives, along with the new age, like we are talking about leveraging big data, blockchain, right? Having the open platform, API-based banking. Recently, we have seen across Asia Pacific, there have been a digital licenses, which Michael was talking about. For example, Singapore is rolling out five digital bank licenses. Malaysia is also rolling out some licenses. So given that, it's not only that technology is an enabler industry to offer services. Now, technology is coming to the forefront, and as a result of that, some new product offerings will be needed, and even the dynamics are changing. So there are no more silos which are taking care of one industry. There are horizontals or big giants like Amazon, Amazon, who need end-to-end services and they offer anything under the sun, that kind of offerings we are looking at.
0: So I guess as a bank looking to build on its current trade technologies, perhaps reinvent some of its legacy architecture, the banks need to think about a future-proofed solution that allows them to grow and allows them to add new offerings on top of what they can already offer. And and as we know, in trade finance, there's a big cross-sell piece in terms of different product offerings, etc, etc, and being able to really tailor needs. So as a bank looking to implement trade technologies in in their back office operations, what are the features that they should be looking at in terms of finding products and finding agile technologies to best serve their corporate customers? Michael?
1: So again, I think there's several things that banks can do to ease the adoption of new technologies into their trained supply chain finance operations. So one thing they should be doing is looking for flexibility and the ease of integration and ongoing maintenance. This market is still very dynamic. It's very volatile. It's changing rapidly. So they need the ability to adapt to those changing market conditions and demands. Digitization is ultimately nothing new in in trade finance. The challenge has always been around adoption and interoperability, which created what we now term as digital islands. We need to be looking at problems holistically, so hopefully we don't just create new digital islands with new technologies. The challenge banks often face, I think, is that they're held back by inflexible systems and can't really offer new products and services at speed in a cost-effective way. Invariably, this can leave them at risk of losing relevance to their corporate clients and ultimately losing business to alternative finance providers that we've talked about or traditional competitors as well. I think also banks should look to effectively prioritize, You know, despite predictions that blockchain could increase global trade volumes by 1.1 trillion dollars by 2026. You know, blockchain is sexy, right? It's not a word that's often used in the same phrase as trade and supply chain finance. Granted, you know, are huge advocates of distributed ledger technology, but it's not necessarily the panacea, and certainly not in the short to medium term. You know, we're going to be living in this hybrid world of paper digitized and digitalized for the foreseeable future because new business paradigms and new technologies take time to be adopted. This is where the likes of OCR and RPA technologies really can be integrated for quick wins from a bank's perspective because we know that 60% of costing relation to trade finance transactions is purely to do with compliance and checking of physical documents. And that is... A use case that is ripe for disruption when it comes to rapidly maturing OCR and RPA technologies. I think one element that's often overlooked as well, Dupesh, is the people issue, right? Is we focus on technology and to a lesser extent, although as critically regulations and the need for standards around digital trade and interoperability, but ultimately there's still going to be people. In this business, and it's widely acknowledged that there's an upcoming trade finance gap from a talent perspective, and we're not necessarily getting the number of people we need coming into the industry to fill that gap. And it's something I'm I'm hugely passionate about. You know, trade finance is a business that can require a huge amount of experience that builds over time, and we need to solve issues in the industry holistically, covering both the growing talent gap and the use of new technologies and practices. There will still be lots of situations where situational and subjective decisions are required, and there's no replacement for the human brain and experience in that respect. The other point to touch on is around the lack of global digital standards and laws. Some countries at the moment aren't currently receptive to electronic originals and require negotiable documents to have a wet signature, for example. So we need to drive change at several levels. In some ways, actually, technology is the easy part. It's having the legal framework and standards to ensure parties can collaborate in a sustainable way with trust as an inherent requirement for any initiative that has proved challenging so far.
0: Thank you very much, Michael. So I guess to end on this, note, and I want to pose a question to both of you, which is a, a fairly difficult question given that we've seen in just six weeks huge changes, sweeping changes, which have affected the global economy. But uh, for both of you, what are the most exciting opportunities coming out of APAC's trade and supply chain finance scene, in your opinion, in the medium to longer term future, so perhaps looking forward to the next decade?
2: Depends, will be here. So if we look at the opportunities which are coming out of APAC trade, first, from a cross-border regulations perspective where they are entering into treaties. So more cross-border businesses would happen. Second, with the globalization, what we are seeing with the manufacturing hubs around, other than China, Thailand, Vietnam, and Philippines, where companies are expanding bases, they are looking at banks and financial institutions to advise them, not only about the trade finance or having traditional products, but also what are the challenges and how they can set up the business. So they are looking at more of a advisory services from banks. That's another initiative what we're seeing. And interestingly, in last few weeks, with the COVID-19 spread out, what we are seeing is there have been changes in supply chain. So companies are looking at coming out with different product mix. So when we say different product mix, they are looking at offering new products which are only currently offered in, say, one geography. So they want to offer those products across other geographies, and those are mostly in personal hygiene or those kind of spaces because that's the current demand. So given that we are looking at financial services and banks widening their offerings and services, getting into advisory, and also companies are looking at changing their product mix to address to the current situations. Michael, you want to add?
1: I'd echo what you've said, Balbir. I think... The continued growth of developing nations, you know, the current SME financing gap presents a huge opportunity in this region. You know, the consumption of goods in emerging markets has grown by about 50% in the last decade, and we've already referenced India and Vietnam and the position they're going to have in the global trade landscape and supply chains in the years to come. I think we'll continue to see, you know, sustainability and focus of coming generations you know, are willing to spend more on brands that are responsible and ethical, the challenge will be where do you draw the line? For example, banks not financing coal-fired power plants, but happy to finance the shipments of coal to those power plants. It's a bit like what I call the free-range egg problem, right? If everyone knows free-range eggs are more ethical, but if they're double the cost of battery hen eggs, you're not allowing people to make a ethical decision. You're forcing them down a financial decision. And that's the same with sustainable trade currently in in some situations. I think one thing is for certain, though, Asia will be the beating heart of global trade. More people and businesses from developing economies coming into the real or official financial system, the growth of the middle classes in those countries we've mentioned, continued growth in trade between developing nations. And as we say, a, a continued emphasis on sustainable practices and the associated financing. I truly believe we can do well by doing good. Got no doubt that companies can work ethically and sustainable sustainably while still growing.
0: Michael, Balbert, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts on some of the opportunities and challenges around trade and supply chain finance in APAC. And I think I'll just summarize with I think there are there are three key themes that I saw throughout this podcast. First of all, the diversification of supply chains outside of Asia, given the huge development of emerging and developing economies. And I think we really will see those new economies dominating markets in the very near future. The second theme is around partnership and the need for collaboration between different players within the trade and supply chain finance industry, whether that be regulatory bodies, associations, banks, alternative financiers, fintechs, and trade techs. The final theme is actually around encouraging new talent to come into and join the trade and supply chain finance market, given the huge opportunities around continued digitalization, innovation of products, etc. So I think it's a very exciting time for APAC in terms of trade and supply chain finance. Michael, Barbier, thank you very much for joining me on Trade Finance Talks this morning. It's been a pleasure having you and look forward to hearing from you soon. Thanks for listening to Trade Finance Talks. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts at tradefinanceglobal.com.